Hello, friends. Welcome back to Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast series supported by Project Entrepreneur, a program sponsored by UBS. We talk to leaders from today's angel and venture capital community, so you might join them. Before we dive in, can you please say hello to my dear friend, Abby Lee Moscone? Abby, how you doing? Chris, I'm pretty great. Wow, I'm, I'm good. pretty great. I'm happy to be here. I've been doing a lot of thinking, and I've got a question. In our relationship, your yours our and relationship, mine. Right. Okay. Am I the investor or the entrepreneur? Wow, this is. It sounds personal for a podcast interview. Okay, I actually already know the answer, and I'm really excited <laughs> cool, to good, say it. Good, good. And I, I think it's obvious because I was actually going to ask you for money at the end of this recording. <laughs> So I, I do know that I'm the entrepreneur, okay, but I, I do it. think a lot of that comes from the fact that I still need a better grounding in the mindset and the approach to being the investor. That sounds an unorthodox but ultimately effective setup for today's <laughs> conversation. True, because I got to interview Alicia Surrett. She's the founder and CEO of Seed and Early Stage Investment Firm Pantegrion Capital, and we talked a little bit about the relationship that an investor has with her entrepreneurs, amongst many other things. Alicia was named one of 25 angel investors you need to know by Ali Watch, one of Wharton's 40 under 40, and a whole bunch of other honors and awards. You'll notice the trend is that everyone we talk to has been in some 30 under 30 or 40 under 40 list, haven't you? I'm, I'm still working on the 90 under 90. It's still my target goal. Oh yeah, we've got a lot of time on that one, thank God. But back to Alicia. She's not just a seasoned investor. She actually also serves on the board of New York Angels, and she regularly shares her wisdom as an instructor in Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad course at Columbia University, and is a recurring panelist on both CNBC's Power Pitch and MSNBC's Your Business. All right, ALM, I listened in, and Alicia gave you a great foundation in approaching modern investment. This is an interview to start your discovery of the asset class. Let's listen in. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. I know that a lot of your teaching and advising is directed towards entrepreneurs. We are trying to give advice to high net worth individuals or anyone that's trying to get involved in investing for the first time. So through that lens, I would love to know with all of your experience and all of the advice that you've given on different TV stations and in writing and at conferences, What's some of the best advice you can give to someone who's just getting started in investing? Sure. Well, I do. I should say that not only do I uh, share a lot of feedback with entrepreneurs, but I've done a ton of talks, too, around getting started in angel investing. So this is right up my alley. It's an area that I'm pretty passionate about also, really empowering people to take their first steps in the space. And some of the initial advice I would give would be to maybe look into the Angel Capital Association. They've got a lot of great resources for beginning angels, whether it's webinars or content on their homepage. And they also have a directory of different angel networks that exist in in different parts of the country. So I think one of the great ways to get started is to join a local angel network and to start participating in deals with seasoned angels. So then you can start learning, you know, how do you build a portfolio? Because a lot of these portfolios that people build, they're 20 plus companies, you know, they're over 10 years time. And it's really crucial to learn from experienced people about what are the red flags to look out for, 
how do I think about legal provisions? What are the best practices of serving on boards or leading deals? And that all starts by working with people and learning from them who've kind of gone through the, the paces before. Interesting. So if you join an angel network, do you get to, are you talking about learning from them by shadowing them or is it more like um, courses where you sit down and you can learn from experienced professionals? How does that work? Well, it's a little bit of both and it certainly depends on the angel network. I had been involved in several angel investment networks in the past. Some had formal classes where you could take the classes to learn about cap tables and how to lead deals and diligence uh, details. But I think there's no substitute for direct experience. So really attending the meeting, things listening to the entrepreneurs present, and then joining diligence teams, and then being there when people ask questions and asking questions yourself and, you know, participating in writing memos, all of these things are really important to be part of as you learn. So you definitely recommend not just diving in on your own, but taking some time first to learn the ins and outs of how it all works. I do. I mean, I think that's probably one of the big things that I would stress about something that I've I've learned on my own that, you know, if I were to give advice on what I might do differently is that um, if you read the research, it's really it's really smart to invest in one out of a hundred or so deals that you see. And all too often when angels start out, because they don't have that experience of seeing so many different deals and gaining a perspective, they often invest too early in the first like one or two deals that they see. And so what happens is they deploy a ton of capital in a few of the deals that they first see and they get excited about. Those deals don't work out, right? Because they're just not the best deals that that might be accessible to them. And then all of a sudden they're like, wow, this this angel asset class is just not great. I've lost all my money and I just, you know, I'm going to stop investing. And it's the wrong way to go about doing it because you haven't put um, capital to work in the best deals. You haven't done it over time. You haven't paced yourself. You don't really know the space. And so I would say, you know, making sure that you're doing the diligence, learning from other people, but seeing the deal flow, you know, co-invest, co-investing with people and, and putting capital to work in that one out of a hundred some odd deals and giving yourself time to see here are all the red flags that I should be aware of because you just don't know that at the start. You don't know what you don't know and you have to give yourself time to learn all of that. Right. So you've been, you're a seasoned professional. You've been doing this for quite some time and you, um, you know, you're an instructor in Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad course at Columbia University and a recurring panelist on CNBC and MSNBC. But in the beginning for you, what were some mistakes that you made that you learned from and still think about today? Well, I would I would kind of come back to what I was just saying, and that is I probably invested too soon. And then mm. what I've learned today are some of the areas that I was highlighting, the red flags, right? Being aware that um, investors shouldn't be proposing to pay themselves too high a salaries or they shouldn't have bankers involved in initial seed stage raises and being able to detect when there's a potential legal issue that's going on at the company or having the entrepreneurs propose to pay off debt instead of put it into the growth of the company. These are all things that once you see this in real life, you're like, oh, of course, like these are not good things and I don't want to be involved in these deals. And there are other things like it's just not standard today to ask for an NDA, um, knowing the legal structure of the company. Most people prefer to invest in C-Corps, not LLCs, the importance of background checks. Like there's all these little things. And that's more on the diligence side, the entrepreneurial side. 
as you think about structuring deals, you also learn the importance of having the ability to invest in future rounds, to know your rights when a liquidation occurs, or to know your rights around getting information about the company and what the entrepreneur can and can't do with the raise. So that's a huge area to learn about too. And and you don't really know it in the start. And finally, I would say just learning about how to be a great supporter of the entrepreneur without getting your hands too deep in the operations. So whether that's really being a great advisory board member or being a great board director, learning all of those techniques, that's pretty important too, because all of this knowledge helps you become a better investor. And I would say like, these are big topics of things I've learned over time on how to be better myself. Right, right. So you have written and spoken quite a bit about due diligence, which you just mentioned, that the investor and the entrepreneur both need to do their due diligence in researching um, the other, and also that a relationship between an investor and entrepreneur can be somewhat similar to a marriage. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about both those things a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, I, I won't take credit for the marriage thing. I think that's one of those tropes that kind of floats around the industry. But, but mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, the point is, is that these relationships do last 10 plus years, right? And so I think a lot of people, when they start the diligence process, they're really looking at the ins and outs of the company. You know, all the details around diligence that you might expect, the market size, the intellectual property, the traction, the scale, the team, you know, the competition, how much money do they need? What are they spending it on? What are the financial projections? All of these things are so important, and I'm not diminishing that. But at the end of the day, you're you're getting involved with someone uh, in a legal relationship. And so you really have to figure out, is this someone that, you know, I want to be helped to and do I get excited about their mission and are there aspects of my own network that could help them increase their success in business and do I like the way that they correspond with me and do I want to receive emails from them often and and you know do I want to meet with them for coffee and that goes both ways right I mean you don't want to be the entrepreneur that has the investor that's like showing up at your office unannounced and you know really bugging you for things when you're trying to run the company and as an investor you don't want to be involved with an entrepreneur who maybe you don't feel like has the integrity that you want or you don't think they're being truthful with you. So there's there's the science of it, which I mentioned, the diligence part of it, but just the importance of the relationship and, and committing yourself to being involved with someone for so long and making sure that you click with them and that you want to be involved and you want to be an active participant in this process of building a company. So you just talked a little bit about the science involved is in in your personal work style is any of it art to you is any of it just intuition and gut or is it all straight up science and business and numbers and research yeah i mean it's it's what i mentioned the the science of it with all the diligence items that i mentioned but it absolutely is a a part art too and i would say for me it comes down to some of the things I mentioned and a couple of more. It's my own level of excitement about wanting to work with the person. It's my sense of whether they appreciate attention to detail and whether if they don't, if it'll drive me crazy, how coachable I think that they might be, you know, are they great at taking advice or they don't have to do what I suggest, but are they listening? Are they you know, taking it in and getting feedback from different places. And also it's really important to assess as best you can, which you can't really do from a science perspective, the ability to pivot because you're, 
investing in these companies at such an early stage, and oftentimes the entrepreneur has to make a decision to do something really different than what they initially envisioned. And you have to trust them to be able to make that call and to be able to decide where the company goes. And so that judgment around whether the entrepreneur can do that, whether you trust them to do that, it's not a science, but you have to kind of get a feel yourself. Like, if this happens, am I going to be able to you know, follow them on this journey and I'm going to be okay and trust that whatever they're going to decide to do is the right decision. Right. Your organization also makes investments in funds related to women-run companies uh, and cannabis, actually. That's right. Which I thought was interesting. And I noticed that you separated women, cannabis, and early-stage companies out specifically. Why do you pull those out when on your website and call them out specifically? Well, I don't know if that was done purposely, but I would say that I am active in both areas and there's not nece- I mean there is overlap, but there's there's not necessarily overlap. So if I'm mentoring the Canopy Accelerator, for example, where I'm an investor, I'm kind of very directed um in terms of like my feedback on the cannabis industry specifically because there are a lot of like ins and outs about pitching that industry, specific concerns, types of investors, people who don't touch that industry at all. And so that I think is is a very tailored approach. And I would say the same thing to giving feedback or interacting with women entrepreneurs is there are a lot of ins and outs about um, particular things that they need to stress or biases that they may encounter. So I'm passionate about both areas, but I do think that there's a little bit of tailoring that occurs in terms of your advice for those specific those specific industries or niches. One of the things, one of the themes I should say that we're exploring through this podcast is how investors have gotten involved in investing in underrepresented women or people of color led companies. So talk to me about a little bit more about your work on women led companies, which I don't know if you've tackled any other categories that are more underrepresented, but talk to me about how much of your portfolio that consumes and how you approach it. Well, I would say that I approach it from the perspective of someone who spent her the vast majority of her career in the financial world, mostly at hedge funds and large private equity firms, and I certainly lived and breathed a lot of biases firsthand, right? So it's something that became a personal pain point for me and something that I'm very passionate about helping change. I also think that in terms of changing society as a whole, women entrepreneurs play such a crucial part in it because they're becoming the engines of job growth. They are creating companies with different cultures from the start, not different, not not better, not worse, but different. Um, they have diversity in their boards from the start. They think about things like flexible time within their company cultures, paid leave. And so I'm very supportive of all of what this represents for how it could help change society. Um, so that that's really the personal angle of it. I would say the vast majority of the companies I've invested in are women-led, so I'm certainly putting my money where my mouth is. But I, yeah. I think it's a matter of um, realizing that this particular group deals with a lot of biases, and I think to the extent that I can be helpful and I can put money to work and I can also help bring about this change in society, then that's something that I want to be part of. When you advise prospective investors on what types of companies to invest in. I don't know if you get that specific, but 
Do you ever talk about the opportunity that exists in some of these underrepresented communities and the companies that exist there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, from a financial perspective, there's a huge arbitrage, right? Because you have women-led companies that have significant amount of traction and potential, but because of biases, that's not being recognized on the same level. And so I think that that's something that anyone should be thinking of. And if you're a savvy investor, looking out for opportunities where maybe the valuation is off and you could get in at a level where you may not be able to otherwise. So I think that that's, it's a smart thing to do. And, you know, of course the data is there that diversity helps with returns. So I, I, I think that it's smart for anyone to think holistically about their portfolio and be able to incorporate diversity from a number of perspectives, whether it's industry, whether it's profiles of founders, et cetera, um, geography, all of these things matter. Do you have any thoughts on what it might take to get the entire investment industry to start to close the gap in investing in underrepresented founders of companies? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of big efforts. The first big thing I would say is that there's so much power and resource availability in a lot of the big companies out there, and they have a tremendous role to play in helping even the playing field, right? So whether it's Big companies putting out huge amounts of money where they're saying we are putting money in female-focused efforts, female entrepreneurs, female fund managers. So I think putting actual capital work is a big deal. Um, Another thing is not only putting capital to work, but maybe housing internal accelerators. So they're not only pulling out their checkbooks, but they're also making resources available internally to these entrepreneurs with mentors and like all their senior management. Um, So that's another big area. There are competitions and programs that companies sponsor. So I guess the gist of all that is that there's no right answer, but it's a combination of opening up your checkbook and opening up your resources um, and having the companies that have the, the most ability to do this really leading the way in this. And so I think that's the top-down approach, but then I would also combine that with what's happening in the industry now, and I would argue that there's a whole new ecosystem being created in that what we're seeing right now is a combination of the fastest-growing entrepreneur areas being women and particularly women of color, right? So those are the fastest-growing mm-hmm. businesses, and at the same time, you're seeing a number of early-stage funds being created by women, and by women of color, either directed at those communities specifically or just more broadly. And I think that we need the diversity both on the investment front, but also on the entrepreneur front. And I think all of this that's happening right now, these are the the seeds that are just beginning to sprout. And I don't think we'll see the true results of that for five, probably more like 10 or 15 years. But we need the bottoms up approach where we have, again, more entrepreneurs, more fund managers being started. And we need the top down approach where the the companies with the most resources are encouraging these efforts and they're seeding them and helping them grow faster. So what is reserve force investing and how do you exercise it? Well, the point I think I was trying to make with saying that I'm, I'm more of a reserve investor is that I'm not the type of person who wants to run a company, right? I, I, my own background was being an entrepreneur and helping launch a company, and I get what that's like. I have no desire to be involved in the operations of a startup anymore, and so it's more the approach of being available 
um, when the entrepreneur needs me, but not being mm. the type of person that's like, hey, I'm going to work out of your office or I'm going to take an interim CEO role or, you know, I want these weekly updates. I'm just not like that. And I would never have wanted an investor to be like that with me. I felt like when I was in the entrepreneurial role, I ran with things. I, you know, knew what I needed to accomplish. And I, when I needed help, I would be able to reach out for it. And so I think that's really what I try to stress is that I'm available if the entrepreneurs need me, but I don't want to be in your business and I don't think you'd want me to either. Um, so that's, you know, and there are other investors out there that may say that they invest in a significant stake in a company and with that comes like a chairman role or maybe they want an operational role and that's just not me. Right. So do you feel like you've made any social impact through your investments and yeah, talk to me about social impact and in, in investing. Is that something that you think about? Is it something that you uh, sort of measure? I do. I mean, I wouldn't say that that's the only thing that I look at, but I certainly find it an attractive aspect of an investment. And I think that it really helps from the perspective of the drive of the entrepreneur, because oftentimes they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, right? I mean, I think that's... Yeah. it's. Um, probably a bigger drive than money for a lot of entrepreneurs to feel like they're changing the world too. And I think it makes me proud to be a part of it. So for me, it's more than just making money. It's also to feel like I'm doing something good. And I think about a couple of investments that I'm in that are doing just that, where I invested in a company called Aunt Flow, and they're a B2B business which um, sells sanitary products to big companies like a Google, like a Twitter. They also sell them to school districts. And it's all under the premise that toilet paper is free. Why shouldn't tampons be free huh. too, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and this woman who runs the company, I mean, she's so amazing. Like she came out of Techstar. She's a Teal fellow. This is Claire Coder. She was starting a company in high school. And I think she's a phenomenal entrepreneur. And I think that this mission that she's a part of is like bigger than you know than her she's so excited to be a part of this and it's something that's happening globally and so i'm so proud to back her but at the same time i'm so excited to be part of what's going on in the world and i in this in this aspect whether it's you know opening up more educational opportunities for young girls whether it's you know meaningful to the cultures of these businesses so i think that it's like kind of a double whammy and there's another company i invested in called mighty well where it's another exceptional woman who runs the company she um had lyme disease when she was in college and she went to the doctor and he had to put a pick line in her arm and she thought well you know, this is unsightly. How do I go on dates in college with this pick line in my arm? And he's like, well, just put a sock around it. And that became the genesis for her starting this adaptive wear company for people with chronic illnesses. Cause she's like, I'm not going to put a sock on my arm. I'm going to design a fabric piece that covers the pick line and empowers patients. So there's all these wonderful things she has, whether it's a pill organizer, whether it's like a jacket that hides, you know, the fluids that are going into someone's body. And this is a substantial business. If you look at the market for adaptive wear, it's tremendous. And there's all these huge companies, whether it's a Target or a Zappos, Tommy Hilfiger that are getting into it. And there's a huge amount of need for this from the, the people um, with chronic illnesses in the population. There's so many. And so I think that it's a tremendous business opportunity, but this is someone who felt the pain point personally of the stigma 
of having a pick line coming out of your body and wanting to solve this problem for people. And like, she's able to connect with patients in a way that I don't think other people could if they didn't have that experience. So I, I look at those examples where I think hmm. these are fundamentally awesome businesses, but at the same time, there's just something so inspiring about these individuals and also what they're part of and what they're trying to do in terms of the changes in society. That's so interesting, especially the, you know, the adaptable wear for people with chronic illnesses. My husband is going through kidney failure right now and carries tons of pills and will probably have to get a fistula for his dialysis. And it's something that we think about, but is also something I have not heard exists. So how do you find these niche companies doing such incredible work with the opportunity to make such social impact? Yeah, well first, I'm so sorry to hear about your husband and if I can be helpful and connect you with the entrepreneur, I I would be happy to. We could follow up offline. I think Thank you. I think so much of what these companies are trying to do too um I think they're trying to establish communities where people can really engage and be a part of it. So it's not just about selling products. It really is an area for support. Um, And so I think a lot of it is like starting to kind of put feelers out, whether it's like certain products, you know, pill organizers or um, like doing Google searches. Usually you'll start coming up with the companies that are involved in these areas because these are the companies that are offering the products through an Amazon or through a Zappos. But oftentimes when you like click through to their website, you can see that it's so much more than just trying to like sell the products. Mighty Well, for example, has a whole ambassadors program where they have all of these patients who are sharing their experiences and talking about this is what we went through. Like the products are one part of it, but it's also talking about coping and support and being there for each other. So that's, it's tough with startups, as you know, because it's hard for them to like do a lot of marketing spend to get the word out. But I think once you kind of start putting your feelers out about products that you might need and then learning about the company behind it, you'll see which ones are really there for the patient too or who really want to do more than just sell products. And how do you personally in your practice find companies like this that you want to invest in? Well, I think it's a combination of sourcing activities that really um, gives me exposure to a lot of people, right? And so there's no one right solution, but it's through all my different speaking engagements. I'm often a judge at different pitch competitions. I run a whole initiative called Point 25 around helping women-led companies build advisory boards. And Mm -hmm. through that initiative alone, I see hundreds of applications from female-run companies. And in fact, both Mighty Well and Aunt Flo, the companies that I mentioned, attended my Point 25 initiative. So I think it's it's a matter of putting yourself out there as a mentor, as a speaker, as a writer, um, hosting events, giving yourself an opportunity to meet people at scale. And the more that you do that, the more you get to have this one-on-one interaction with people and figure out like, is this someone I get really excited to talk to about you know their company and do I want to proceed further? Um, so I, so I think it's, I think it's just, I think it's just putting yourself out there to be available and accessible and get a lot of deal flow, and then start figuring out which companies in particular excite you. This has been so informative. Thank you so much. I think that anyone who's interested in looking into investing would find a lot of great starters here. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, 
Is there anything else that you feel like you didn't get to say that you would want to add? Well, the only other thing that I would add is that for people who are first starting, I would give them a roadmap of a few things to think about, which I feel like I learned over time, and that is the aspects of an investment profile, but maybe this is something for them to jumpstart their thought process. There are probably about five things to think about in terms of your investor profile. One is if you have a preference for specific industries that you invest in. Two would be if you have a locational preference, you know, i.e. only in my city, only in this country, whatever. Um, Three would be if you have a valuation preference. So maybe you only want to focus on the earliest stage companies, you know, two to five million valuation, something like that. Four would be check size, you know, whether you're always constant at like a classic angel check of 25K or maybe it's less or maybe it's more depending on the situation. And then five, whether you're an active or passive investor. And I say all these things because I think most people start pretty open-minded and they're like, well, I'd invest in any geography, in any industry. But Mm -hmm. to the extent that you can think about that as you first get started and express those preferences to the entrepreneurs, you're saving them a lot of time in targeting you and figuring out if you're the right fit for them and you're saving yourself time in having companies target you that are a better fit for you. So those are the big areas I would say start to think about and start to think about what your investment profile is. Um, So that way you can really hone in on the companies that are right for you and spend time diligencing companies that fit your profile as best as possible. Excellent. Thank you so much, Alicia. Really appreciate your time and your words of wisdom. Thank you. As promised, that is a solid foundation on modern approaches to early stage investing. I I like the bit on due diligence. There's only so far a gut feeling can take you. Yeah, man. (laughs) But, But there's a balance to avoid overkill. Entrepreneurs, they will speak to deals dying in due diligence for all the wrong reasons. So, Abby, what stood out to you from your own conversation? Personally, I liked that she took some time to talk about the relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur. As someone who's just getting interested in this subject and learning as I go, I like understanding that the approach can vary from one investor to the next. It is a personal relationship. Yep, that yeah. is a great takeaway. And you, you, you at listener can, can take that as you will. Um, and that's the lesson because that is time. We are done with this episode of Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast series brought to you by us at Technically and powered by Project Entrepreneur, a program sponsored by UBS. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Make sure you subscribe and dive into the full series. And if you have questions or comments, tweet us at TechnicalLY or me at Christopher Wink. You can email me at Chris at Technically if you'd like to offer praise. If you have complaints, please send them to Abby at Technically. Yes, and the greatest joke there is that I am not on Twitter. But anyways, thanks for listening, guys. Join us next time. Bye-bye.